Hello, everybody, and welcome to this session of the Thinkers Lounge. Today, I have a very special guest all the way from the UK. His name is Jonathan Frost. He is a uh, physicist and a very passionate uh, environmentalist. So, uh, yeah, I would like to introduce Jonathan Frost. Uh, share with us a little bit uh, more about yourself, John. Oh, thanks, Jink. Really, really appreciate you having me here. And again, it's really good to connect with all the way from the UK to Malaysia. It's a uh, it's real pleasure. I've only been over there once or twice. Um, came to see you over in Langkawi with the uh, with the many days of firewalking. And that was really quite an experience. So, yeah, I um, I can't do the sob story. Uh, I'm a white privileged male. Uh, from London. Um, I went to a good primary school. I went to a very good secondary school, a grammar school. I was blessed. My parents, my parents made a big effort to get me in the local grammar school rather than the comprehensive. So it's a free school, but, but it's supposed to be the local elite um, school. Uh, and then I was one of, the, one of the few to go from grammar school to Imperial College London to take physics. Um, so I've, I've had, in, technically, I've had a standard tram tracks uh, path from school to university to PhD to job to where I am today. You know, if, that was, if that was true, um, I'm a monkey's uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, as, as, as you can hear from what uh, Jonathan has shared with us, you know, uh, he has a strong background in physics and then uh, right now he, one of his passions is really to uh, contribute back the, to society and uh, really his, his, his thought, what, what really drew me into uh, John is really his sharp mind, uh, sharp and analytical mind. You know, he, his mind is very open to concepts and ideas, but he's also very uh, practical in the sense where he analyzes things in a rational way, uh, especially from his uh, physics background, going through the scientific process, uh, as they say, right? Yeah, and in the, in the personal development world, so I, I dropped into the personal development world about four years ago, 2016, um, when I was introduced to events uh, with the motivational scene, went down to London to my first motivational event, uh, and it was a scene that was totally alien to me. Um, and and now and that and now I've sort of come out the other side. I've I've realised that motivation is useful, but it's only part of the story. Um, and now I'm turning around to the coaching industry and the high-level coaching industry. And the first step is self-awareness. So I I um you know I I think Ching's Ching's right that I come from a very rational-minded place, uh, but my going to the personal development industry, I recognise the weak spot as the emotional and the human connection. So, so that's been an eye opener, and, and now I'm working towards uh, building my empathy skills and the listening and people skills uh, and you need them both i i talk to a lot of coaches uh, and they come from more of an emotional person-based background 
and they do seem to struggle with the rational. Mm. And I'm the opposite extreme. I'm, a, I'm comfortable with the rational and mm. less comfortable with the emotional. And that's why, again, Ching and I are quite a, a yin and yang, as it were, <laughs> uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. That, that Ching is really from a, really has a really strong spiritual core. Mm. Uh, and I have a strong scientific core. Oh, great. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for sharing sharing that with us. Yeah. So today we'll be discussing uh, about uh, Japan's recent plans to uh, release their radioactive waste uh, into the sea. We'll be talking about uh, COVID nineteen in the UK, the responses to it, and we'll be talking about critical thinking uh, with an information overloaded world. So let's begin with uh, the what's happening in Japan right now. So it seems that in, in Japan, uh, as Reuters has shared, that uh, they are planning to release Fukushima's contaminated water into the sea. And uh, basically back in 2011, there was a, an earthquake and a tsunami which affected the nuclear power plant in Fukushima. And what Japan is planning to do right now is to release over 1 million tons of contaminated water into the sea. So what are your thoughts uh, about that, John? Yes, yeah, so, so again, this is where the coaching principles come in. Because if we were, we were counselling, we'd look back in the past and we'd say, and we'd say well, how, how the heck did we get in this position in the first place? And so in going back 10 and 20 years, why, why was the plant placed where it was so close to the sea? Why, why did no one think about the risks there or were the risks underestimated? And then if it had to be put so close to the sea, why was it so low lying? Because <laughs> it was actually quite close to sea level. So why didn't they, if, if they knew that one, just make it a bit higher. And then it comes to 2011. If you knew you built the plant and you realize that it's quite low lying, then why, why, how did you manage to fail to protect the systems that are supposed to kick in in case of emergency um, is are is it reason is there anything useful to be gained by by going into the into the history of the engineering mistakes or do we move from counseling to coaching and saying we are where we are and now what do we do moving forward? We, we, as, as in coaching, we acknowledge the mistakes that have been made, but we don't dwell on them. Uh, and again, so now, now nothing is clear cut. Um, and also definitions uh, need, to be, need to be brought in. So releasing a million tons of contaminated water into the sea obviously sounds bad but but is there an alternative because my understand my understanding is that once you've got that quantity of contaminated water you, you're running out of alternatives if um, I was reading about this and if the radioactive component is the tritium and the tritium is an isotope of hydrogen. So it is actually the water itself that's radioactive and you can't, 
it's it's technically you can't separate out the tritium from the ordinary hydrogen if that's true then you you can't for example evaporate off the good water from the bad so uh, i i bounce back this argument to to um to people now i say if you're not gonna release it into the sea what's the alternative mm. yep so so do you think with uh with their suggestions of releasing this uh one million over tons of water in the sea now of course when you look into more detail it will be spread out across a certain period of time and ensuring that it's uh, diluted uh, so that it does not uh, severely affect the ecosystem. So do you think uh, that if there are any fears, it's a bit too blown out of proportion? Yeah, it's, it's do the numbers. If, obviously it's all bad, but if we're talking, I mean, it, engineering wise, it sounds like the best alternative is to pipe that water certainly offshore a bit and then maybe as deep as possible to get the quickest dilution. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's the sort of way forward. And then transparency of government and engineering companies involved. Because I think one of the initial problems was, was that the, the um, the power plant company itself, and then the government was a bit economical with the actuality. They weren't being transparent about what was actually going on. And I, I think if you, I think it, the most important thing in a sense is public confidence. Hmm. So what would, make, what would make me happier? Nothing would make me happy but what would make me happier if I saw independent testing people going in, maybe an international group going in to monitor the spread of the radioactivity and its level. That's the first monitoring. And then the second level, second level monitoring is to see what the effects are. Mm. And if that was, if that was published publicly, I, I would have a, a lot more confidence. Mm. So, so at this stage, uh, as far as we know, uh, there isn't such uh, oversight. Which is unfortunate. Mm. Yep. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so, who, yeah, who makes the dis so you've got to follow it back. Who makes the decision and how, how can, how can you make it? So it's a win-win for them. So if it's a government decision, what do they want? Do they want to be seen to be open and truthful? And is that a, a, is that a useful thing in their country? And would, would, they, would they earn uh, good points, good standing, mm. if, they, if they showed themselves to be open? Yeah. yeah. I think within the context of the culture of uh, Japan, uh, I, I feel at least from what I know is that there's a high level of uh, accountability. Uh, and if you, usually if you see uh, severe incidences where there's a lack of government oversight, uh, you would see the leaders uh, step, step down from it and uh, be accountable uh, for it. 
So yeah, per perhaps like what you suggested, they would be uh, open to it, to the international uh, community. Yeah, because I think if they can, it, it's always nice if everyone can be seen to win or yeah. perceive that they've won. Yeah. So obviously with uh, incidences like the Fukushima disaster, um, this, this brings back the nuclear uh, power industry, right? Uh, as our world uh, evolves, uh, we are consuming more and more power as, as a society. And energy security is a huge uh, problem in uh, many countries, right? And uh, nuclear power is seen to be one of the most uh, efficient ways uh, to generate power. Now, from, uh, from your, your perspective uh, as a physicist and environmentalist, uh, what do you think about nuclear power and what are our other alternatives? Yeah, so it does seem that it has to be part of the mix. Because um, we were talking about this just before the, the, uh, we went live, but it's a, dis a decision for is a decision against. So if you don't want a, power, a nuclear power station, what do you want instead? If you, you, if you don't want to drop your living standard, your living standard is, is based on how much energy you consume. And if you don't want to get the energy from nuclear, then what do you want to get it from instead? Um, I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit of history um, because why why are we making nuclear power stations that run on mainly on uranium and plutonium, which, which are only one step away from nuclear missiles? Uh, do you have any idea on that one, Ching? No, no idea. Okay, so when they first made the, when they first, made the first few nuclear reactors, maybe in America and Britain, 1950, then there was a strong military involvement and so they said, well, look, if we can only build one type of reactor, um, the military said, well, I think we need one which can make the bomb material as well. So it's that, that legacy from 1950 mm -hmm. has, has persisted all the way through that up until now, we mainly have nuclear reactors that use quite multi-purpose materials, uranium and plutonium, uh, that that can also be used for the bombs. Mm. Now, I am led to believe, and there's a whole school of thought, um, that it may be possible to make reactors using thorium, mm. which is only one step away from uranium, um, but you can't make bombs out of it. Um, mm. And some, some uh, again, it, the devil is in the detail, uh, but some people are very optimistic in this direction. Uh, India is doing some quite a lot of research here, um, but the but the possibility of a thorium nuclear reactor potentially has massive safety advantages. So safety in that they can be designed so they can't melt down in the same way as Fukushima. Mm -hmm. uh, they they it's a, all a bit techy, but the coolant could be liquid salt. And it's quite, it's relatively straightforward to make those fail safe. So if the power goes, if the power drops, if there's an earthquake or the electricity fails, it can fail safe. Mm. 
that's that's one huge advantage and the other advantage is that you can you can well second one is you can steal you can steal the thorium you won't be able to make a bomb out of it and the third uh, possible massive advantage is that thorium is much more common than uranium uh, uranium now if if that's true if those three statements are true then i i wonder why governments are not putting so much investment in apart mm. from india mm. interesting yeah so um from from what you know uh, is the technology already there or is it still in r and d that, yes and my understanding is that they are demonstration reactors mm. and the the problem is we don't have any time Hmm. So even if we said tomorrow we could do with a hundred nuclear reactors, typically the uh, nuclear reactor power stations in Britain might take seven to ten years to come online. Hmm. I'm not sure we've got seven to ten years to get our act together. Interesting. Yeah. So so it sounds like if it were to take seven to ten years. And that's the the path ahead. Then something needs to fit uh, in the interim. There's that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, some another alternative is talking about modular nuclear power systems. So they're small, um, maybe the size of a of a twenty ton lorry, hmm. that sort of size. Hmm. Um, and then that again has many potential advantages so you can have them in the middle of nowhere so you can you don't need such a a, a well-developed infrastructure for the power lines electric cables going everywhere and mm. um, they could be made in a factory rather than built on site so that means your quality control could be much higher and so, so that, that that's another direction. And obviously, because they're smaller, uh, you can make those much, much quicker on the on the one year timescale. Oh, that's nice. And that's the yeah, and the technology I think is is fairly well developed because my understanding is that's roughly how your nuclear ship would work. Mm. Oh, that's uh, the nuclear subs, right? Yeah. Your so nuclear, so nuclear subs and and uh, things like aircraft carriers. Which have got which have got more space, they can have really quite large nuclear reactors in, okay. uh, and they they seem to have worked quite well. Hmm. Then then what what about uh, nuclear fission? Then where yeah, where so does that, that those yeah so those are all nuclear fission, mm. uh, uranium and plutonium that's all nuclear fission, um, and the alternative uh, in a perfect world would be nuclear fusion. That's mm. the that's where we combine a couple of hydrogens together uh, to make helium. Mm. So that's that's how the sun works, roughly. Um, but I'm 58 years old now, and uh, nuclear fusion has been about 40 years away for the last 40 years, <sighs> and it's still about 40 years away. Mm. Um, so I. I I love the technology. I love I love uh, the Tokamak reactors, um, Didcot, and the Joint European Taurus. These are all amazing technical feats. But if I was putting money on it, 
then I wouldn't. Mm. So if if I had if I had a hundred pounds to invest in power stations, I'd put the one I'd put the one in nuclear fusion and ninety nine pounds in everything else. Mm. So uh, I I I go with more with you know Carl Sagan and uh, Isaac Asimov. Yep. Uh, every every civilization will eventually be solar powered. <laughs> so. So, if you were to say, okay, what kind of percentage energy mix、uh, would you say would be ideal for you, other than maybe a hundred percent solar power, <laughs> like like what what you、uh, suggested? Yeah. So again, we'll, we'll make a distinction between we'll make a distinction between what I'd like to see and what I suspect will end up.、Uh, then, I suspect. We'll we'll have to have. It's it's pretty tricky to put the numbers on. That's a very good question, but I suspect it'll end up on. And again, what 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 time scale?、Mm-hmm. Five, ten, or twenty-year time scale? Which which would you fancy? What what bet would you like? Yeah, I, I would like to say the next ten years. Ten ten in ten years' time,、uh, I I suspect.、Um, Yeah, nuclear maybe up at thirty percent. Solar, solar and wind combined. I would like to see what forty, fifty percent. That's what I'd like to see. Then, then things like tidal, tidal have not got capacity to go much bigger.、Mm. Uh, geothermal again hasn't really got the capacity to go much. We need as much as we can, but there's not so many places. Uh, and then the we the tricky one is the oil replacement for vehicles.、Mm-hmm. So obviously, at the moment, there's lots of talk about electric vehicles,、mm-hmm. um, but that's not doing so well. For example, for ships, so、mm-hmm. nearly impossible for aeroplanes, and also and then ships. Sorry, or, you know. Big container vessels—that's quite tricky on electric. Just, just big problems there.、Hmm. So, so somehow we need to get we need to get a source of oil replacement、hmm. for some vehicles.、Uh, and at the moment, that's done through quite a lot of it's through ethanol,、uh, and that. Is is、um, a waste of time, energy, and money in most places. So, in the United States, it's about one barrel of oil used to make one barrel of ethanol.、Mm. So that's not worth doing. Yep.、Mm. Yeah. So we. So this is this is going off stray a bit, but I would like to see yeah the ten twenty. Ten, twenty, thirty percent oil replacement from bio, but、mm. not with the present technology.、Mm. It, the 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 biofuels have to come from genuine waste organic material. At the at the moment, it's it, we're using food and good quality wood to make fuel, and that's ethically questionable. And at the moment, doesn't seem to be energy 
efficient either. So, so in terms of uh, renewables right now, uh, in terms of solar and wind and uh, maybe even uh, tidal, uh, is the bottleneck still in terms of uh, battery capacity technology? Uh, so I, my understanding is that the, the bottleneck right now is just making solar panels and wind turbines quick enough. Mm. Okay, because, uh, yeah, obviously storage, and again, storage is, is not insurmountable. Mm. So batteries are nice, but I'm a bit old school. Uh, and and I, the lower tech, or make the lower tech that the energy storage can be, the more reliable it's going to be. Hmm. So the the energy storage systems that work really well at the moment. So that's hydro. So you fill up you fill up a dam with water during the day, and let it run down at night if you were storing solar power. Okay, and then the. The other equivalent that I really like are the uh, are things to do with gravity. Gravity is very reliable. Hmm. So there are systems, there are systems where you have a great big concrete block on a piece of wire and you raise and lower it down a mine shaft. Hmm. So running back, running back a dynamo and motor. And again, this is really important, but I've got to let the cat in. All right. <laughs> Uh, Leo, Leo, the cat demands attention. Yep. So yeah, right, raising and lowering concrete weight down a mine shaft. That that is really well tried and tested technology, uh, and and it's quite efficient. You're up in the ninety percent efficiency. Mm. And the other one I really like, because I've always liked railways, is the is the electric train, with a string of a string of uh, very heavy trucks. And again, the electric train drives up the hill, mm -hmm. and that's that's using up the electricity. And then you let it roll down again, and that turns it back from from uh, gravitational potential energy back into electricity. So that's the that's the type of storage that, that again could be put into place tomorrow. Mm. So yes, keep working on the batteries, but tomorrow. Um, reuse, reuse some mine shafts and maybe some hills. Wonderful. I think those those are very uh, practical uh, suggestions. Uh, well, hope, hopefully, the right people, uh, the right decision makers, uh, could could listen to this. And uh, yeah, uh, we, we talked about yeah we talked about geothermal very briefly, and one of the one of my colleagues, um, uh, Mike Woodward, is is talking to various people about using flooded coal mines. Hmm. So it's nearly impossible to open up a flooded coal mine to get coal out, mm -hmm. and you might not want to do it for climate change anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the coal it might be best left in the ground. Mm -hmm. um, but but the mines get quite warm. Uh, the deeper you dig a hole, the warmer the warmer the ground is. So there is massive potential for for turning deep 
flooded coal mines into massive heat pumps. Mm. And, and again, for those not blessed with the knowledge of heat pumps, heat pump is a fridge working in reverse. So um. I'm sure you, you know, if you stick your hand around the back of your electric fridge, it's warm. Yep. So the heat pump, the fridge is moving heat energy, as they say, from the, your goods in your bottle of drink inside the fridge. And it, the heat pump is moving that energy from the, the fizzy drink to those cooling, those pipes at the back, the black pipes at the back. So just imagine, just imagine if you could do that with a great big hole in the ground, a flooded coal mine, mm-hmm. and uh, you could use all that tapped heat, bring it up to a useful temperature mm. uh, up, at, up, at, uh, up at room level, uh, up at ground level. That's great. Yeah, yeah, I, I never thought. Uh, thought of that or uh, accounted that uh, suggestion yeah. so it's very interesting yeah because we yeah so us us entrepreneurs one definition of entrepreneur is making the best use of undervalued resources mm. so if someone wants to someone wants to sell you a coal mine cheap because it's useless and flooded what what else could you use it for mm. interesting entrepreneurs you heard that <laughs> There's there's some the, opportunity there. Yeah, the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. Certainly, yeah. And you you touched a bit on a uh, climate change, and you know I I like to get a little bit uh, about that. So uh, in the current uh, discussion, uh, well, glo- global discussion, you've got two two camps of thoughts. Well, one where they they feel that okay, climate change is a really serious problem which could wipe out uh, humanity. Okay. Then you've got the other camp, which thinks that, okay, you know, yes, climate change is real, but it's just, just a cycle that uh, our world uh, goes through. What, what uh, are your thoughts and uh, research into climate change? Yeah, so my, my understanding is, is that it's, it really is a, a 99% scientific probability that it is true and it is man-made so if again going back to the coaching principle what so if the only if the only debate is whether it's man-made or not so what Mm. Um, because if the temperature is going up for whatever reason we probably better do something about it Mm Yeah, I, I guess the question then would be, um, this, this is where uh, the decision-making process uh, has, has to come in, where we, we as a society decide on where resources and our attention is allo- allocated towards. Because if indeed it is man-made, yes, more resources should be allocated uh, to, to tend that site, right? But uh, if we are making decisions based on uh, uh, inaccurate information, then uh, the opportunity cost of using those resources or rather uh, maybe in in the case of uh, man-made climate change, uh, taking away resources uh, from certain modes of production, it may be uh, counterproductive uh, in that sense. Mm. So, 
as I say, my 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 position is that is that climate the evidence that's being presented to me is that mm -hmm. climate change is real. <laughs> and so uh, the the meta discussion, uh, which we touched on before we went live, is how to debate constructively with with those in an opposite camp. Mm. Um, so that's why I, all I would say is do the research yourself, do the numbers yourself, go back as far into the original data that you can see and only believe, yeah, trust nobody. <laughs> the, the, only, the only underlying belief that I want anyone watching to have is, is in the scientific method. Hmm. Uh, and this so this is takes it to a higher level which is the scientist is comfortable with being wrong hmm. if if i if i was presented with evidence tomorrow that showed me using the scientific method that i was wrong great <laughs> so so that's good now, and that's totally different that's totally different from maybe a political perspective hmm. Where the where the outcome is not necessarily seeking the truth, but is maybe seeking a different purpose, hmm. which might be staying in power, or keeping a population quiet, hmm. or maintaining standards of living. Hmm. That's that's just a different. That's that's just a different purpose, yeah. and, and yeah. I think the the biggest mistake we can make is mixing up scientific discussion with political discussion. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a huge problem the world is uh, facing uh, right now is the confusion uh, between the two camps. Yeah. Yeah, because again, I, again, just going purely practical, um, I quite like this, this, this argument that says, you know, so say there's no such thing as, as you know, climate change and uh, we, we make we make all industry sustainable and have cleaner air. Um, well, there's no downside. <laughs> you just made the place better. Yep. Yep. So yep. I, I can't, I, I can't see the downside in, in working towards sustainability in general. Yep. Yeah. I, I think working towards it is certainly good. And I think the, the argument uh, that usually people have against it would be if you were to, switch it overnight, shut down industries, uh, you've got a, a segment of uh, the population, uh, industries that's displaced, and yes, there will be societal chaos. Exactly. And that's why, that's why it's quite interesting. I was having a look at the, uh, it's easy to get these statistics in America, but I was looking at the United States Department of Labor um, top expanding businesses and jobs uh, and that we going back to what we said earlier it's got to be win-win mm. so one of the massively growing areas of business is wind turbine mechanic <laughs> uh, and I think again I think we're talking about 10,000 jobs at the moment mm. and that's with and that's when wind is providing 1% of energy requirement. 
So if you're aiming for 10, that's 70,000 jobs to make, please. Mm. Wow. So just, you know, you, you know, just, just make it win-win. Mm. You, know, you can't, exactly as you say, you can't say no more coal tomorrow mm -hmm. because it doesn't work that way. So you have to retrain, you have to retrain every coal-related worker into a sustainable energy production worker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, that, and that's political. That's not, I suspect that's technically possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that the barrier is political, not, not technical. Yep. And you, you, you touched about uh, the scientific method, right? And then I, I feel that there is also a crisis within uh, scientific institutions uh, in terms of uh, the peer review system. I don't know if you're, you're aware about uh, the, the issues yeah. within it. So, uh, because it seems to me from what I know uh, that within the peer review system, the incentives are skewed towards uh, supporting the established status quo uh, rather than being able to constructively uh, find, find the truth, essentially. Yeah, I, I suspect that this is COVID-related. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because, about that. Yeah. Uh, re recently, one of, the, one of the tragedies from COVID is, is, the, is the breach of scientific confidence and trust. And um, that's got as far... So the COVID-related one, which is quite recent, um, is the is the peer-reviewed paper that got as far as being published in the Lancet, which is obviously a very well-established and mature journal. Um, and then some people thought it didn't smell right. Um, and then there was then after it was published, there was a warning: take care. And then a couple of weeks after that, there's a retraction, and that. That paper was based on made-up data. Mm. Now, the bit that concerns the tragic part is I, I saw some of the original data that was presented with the paper, and I could see it was made up. Mm. So I'm sure everyone here, everyone here might think they're not a scientist and that only scientists could tell whether it's fake data or not. But what, what, um, what jumped out to my eyes, we had two sample populations, as we call them. So that's two groups of people in two countries, yeah, who came out with exactly the same per percentage score in in a certain illness or characteristic so you've got a group of 100 people in in whatever it is australia and 100 people in america and there were exactly in both groups 13.7 percent had a particular characteristic hmm. now that never happens <laughs> <laughs> so that that jumped and it kept on happening through the paper and the data sets hmm. so Anyone that got past the paper, looked at the data, 
for more than about five or ten minutes, that's when alarm bells should have been ringing. Hmm. Now, and that's the job of the peer review person. Hmm. So, because because I've come from, I've had papers published and um, and co-authored, and it's a slow in my day. <laughs> And again, I, I would hope it's the same now, but in my day, so it's 20 years ago, uh, it, it's a very slow process. Your technical paper in physics will go to maybe two, maybe three referees, and they'll pick it apart. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an anonymous process as well. So they, they don't have to say who they are, so they can be totally honest, and they'll pick your arguments apart. Mm-hmm. They're saying, prove it, prove it, prove it. And you have to convince that anonymous arbiter that you're being honest. Mm-hmm. So I'm, that's, that's my biggest concern about this latest debacle. The, the, scientific, the science papers don't seem to be going under good enough quality control. Mm-hmm. And some of the original experiments related to COVID treatments are not, are not being done right. Mm. Yeah. And, and that, that poses a huge problem, I think, in general for, for science, right? Yeah. Because people yeah. tend to generalize the, the uh, outlier case to the general. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that, that's, the, that, that's the very deepest concern I've seen. And then obviously the more shallow and obvious concern is all the governments that use weasel words like we are following scientific advice <laughs> um, when they're not <laughs> they are cherry they're cherry picking yep, yep. they're choosing what they want to hear mm-hmm. from the scientists because yep. the whole whole point about science as you as i'm sure you know the audience and yourself are picking up right now i am being very cautious with my words Mm-hmm. And a scientist, when they've got their scientist hat on, will be very, very cautious mm-hmm. and seek to be very understanding of the critic's position. Mm. Yep. And, and also in the way when you have your science hat on, an analytical uh, perspective on, you speak in probabilities, not in certainties. There are no, there are no certainties. Yeah. There are no certainties in science. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess that's the lesson that uh, our entire society is learning through this uh, COVID process. You know, because one of the fortunate things is that you know, we are learning how to analyze data as, as they, they come as a society. That is under the assumption that we keep our own biases uh, at bay and not get pulled. Uh, to or, or at the very least, recognise our own biases. Yeah, yeah. We're, we we can't get rid of anyone that says they get rid of their biases is is lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you just have to recognise they're there. Mm-hmm. Just take a mm-hmm. back. Yeah. So since since we are already talking about COVID, uh, how is the current situation in the UK? And uh, what do you think about the current uh, response uh, from, from the government and, uh, well, just uh, as a citizen uh, in the UK right now? 
yeah so so yeah i'm a, i'm a physicist mm -hmm. i'm not a medical doctor I'm, i i don't do medical yep. um but i but i can objectively look at evidence mm -hmm. um, and objectively i think it can be said that the uk government has acted poorly <laughs> shall we say um they have they were late they were late and they have not followed genuine scientific guidance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they, so just taking it to a different level um it's not rocket science so i look if we look at taiwan 10 years ago um issues with sars so horrible similar epidemic to to covid with many many uh, tens maybe hundreds of deaths back in back 10 years ago um but the good news is when when covid comes came to taiwan they had a plan in place so everyone wears a mask a public public advertising campaign saying please wear a mask this is why and um obviously an efficient uh, testing mm. campaign now so this is why i'm saying it's not rocket science if you know someone has experienced the an, an issue before have learned from it and know what to do it's probably in the first instance best to just copy them <laughs> yeah so so a lot of time and energy could have been saved by just opening your eyes look around the world mm. who's who's had who's got the experience who who should i copy yep. no no pride that's right so if you if you take pride out of the equation and uh, you know if you if you don't have to have a world-beating homemade track and trace system, mm -hmm. uh, and and you just ask who's got the best one, let's let's um, see if we can buy it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, then then yeah. So UK UK a massive massive issue with with not really using scientific method, mm -hmm. uh, and similar it appears in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yep. And my understanding is that the top four, the top four, which have acted in a pretty much similar fashion, there's uh, Taiwan, Malaysia, South Korea, New Zealand. Basically, they, they've acted, all, all of those have got very small numbers of deaths, and, uh, deaths related, and they've all been pretty tight on masking testing mm -hmm. contact tracing and lockdown at the beginning mm -hmm. uh, yeah uh, i mean uh like like what you mentioned uh especially for the south southeast asian countries we've uh, went through sars so uh we are we are very well uh aware of uh the importance of having the systems in place the proper policies uh, in place and uh I suppose also coming from an uh, Asian country, we tend to be more compliant uh, to uh, uh, authorities as well. Yeah, I yeah I've heard that I've heard that, and 
in Sheffield, even even before COVID, we've seen the students from Hong Kong, for example, who who will wear a who were wearing a face mask in Sheffield because maybe they had a cold, mm. and their their natural their natural um, inbuilt sensibility was to protect other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because because the whole you know as as we know that the mark your face covering with SARS and COVID is to mainly to stop you contaminating someone else. Mm-hmm. Yep. It doesn't guarantee you protection from other people. It's it's to stop uh, a major contamination from you getting out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. And I, I and, and although you say you know uh, South Asia compliant, I think if there'd been transparency and consistency, I think people would have got it immediately. Mm. Yes. Yep. Cut, cut, you know, you, you cover your cover your mouth when you sneeze. We're just one step away from that. This one's a bit more. This one's a bit more nasty than the common cold. Mm-hmm. So we're asking you, please, everyone, wear some kind of face covering. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, no, no exception. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I think the the problem is also in terms of uh, the mode of communication, and like for example, there's a lot of uh, countering points when it comes to wearing face masks because yes, the main goal is to prevent the spreading uh, uh, of uh, the, the the virus rather than protecting yourself, and I find that the problem comes in is when uh, authorities or people who support masks, instead of saying it's just to put, uh, protect yourself, uh, protect the transmission of the virus, they instead they go towards uh, protecting yourself from the virus. And then that's where the counter uh, argument comes in and gains strength. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, if someone said to me, "Please do this because you, you're you're going to help other people," then yeah, that's 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 a very strong argument rather than do this and protect yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I, a, I I find that uh, like I, what what you mentioned, you mentioned that you 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 aren't a uh, med- medical professional or whatsoever, but by virtue of you being a, a scientist, you have the lens and analytical skills. To understand the statistics, right? And exactly, I, and yeah. yeah, and some of them are really, some of them are really simple as well. Is that that? I it seems common sense that that diseases come out in droplets that you cough and spit out. Mm. That seems really under, easy to understand. So I've seen the video. That shows that shows the the person coughing and spitting with and without the face mask, where the where the video is taken, where you can see the track of every particle. Now, once once you've seen that video, that that uh, shoving a piece of cloth over your face cuts it down by uh, it reduces it to one percent, even even if it's just a piece of cotton. Yeah, if you've seen that, I can't. From then on, I can't see how you you could not wear a face covering if you mm-hmm. if you've had any if you had any um, doubts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 
so okay. yeah, let's 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 get into more about uh, statistics, right? What are the most important uh, statistics to look at when it comes to COVID? Because so, I find that there there yeah. are a lot of people who just focuses on the nominal value rather than uh, per million basis or per hundreds or yeah. thousand. Yeah, it is lot, there's lots of little catches out there. So you're absolutely right. Right at the beginning, people were focusing on number of deaths per country and they weren't, they weren't normalizing it. They weren't taking into account the population. That, that's even, even in general public, the politicians are saying this now in deaths per 100,000. Um, but there is, there's many levels of complication. Like, at the, so people are talking about a second wave now, okay? But there's, there's, a, there's a statistical problem underlying that. In March, first wave, so-called, then only the people that were obviously ill were being tested. <laughs> so you're probably, everyone, everyone that's coughing and spluttering is probably gonna come out positive. Mm -hmm. and, and if there were any false positives, there were so many real positives, it didn't matter. Okay, back in March. Now we're trying to test everybody. The rate of positives is small because most people are mostly well and you're testing to be on the safe side. Yep. But that means now the false positives are a much higher proportion of the positive test. Mm. Okay, so what, what you might be seeing now is, is a statistical anomaly, as they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so if, you, if you base your political lockdown on a second spike that isn't really there, mm -hmm. that's not ever so, ever so clever or scientific. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that, so, and that, that, and that is only, that's only uh, going scientific. Because at another level, they're saying that the lockdown is not the most efficient way to reduce transmission anyway. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, the, the other, right, totally, totally different statistic. <clears throat> the, the risk of death from COVID is a really, really strong function of age. Yep. In, in technical terms, it's what exponential or logarithmic, anyway, where you look at it. So you're 10 times, you're roughly 10 times more likely to die of COVID if you're 30 than if you're 20. Mm. And 10 times more likely to die if you're 40 than if you're 30. Wow. So me up at, 58 i better be a bit careful <laughs> now so so that that should have influenced policy mm. because because not everyone is created equal 
yep. you've got you've got the your random risk of picking up covid but then once you've got it if you're older you you then have a much higher risk of it doing some some harm <laughs> so it, it needs a bit of thought but but may, you know maybe like like they've opened the schools maybe you you want to you want to you open the schools but you make sure the teachers are younger rather than older maybe mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and then the, so, the the argument would be then if you open up the schools and these kids bring it back to their households with uh, uh, adults or parents who are of a, a more higher risk level then that's another level that, that's right yeah. that's right but but also what they're saying is that the because the kids the kids the younger people don't express the symptoms as much and if the symptom is coughing and sneezing and spluttering then if they go home they're not going to they're not going to present such a high viral load to mm. their parents and granny than than say it was an older person so yeah so that so yeah that that's but that's you know and that's another aspect yeah yep. so yes yeah, so like in a in the workplace if if it's an office environment do the older members, the older workers, just need to take a bit more care? Mm. Do they want to be encouraged to do more homeworking than the younger people? <laughs> yep, yep. So yeah, uh, so so it's a matter of uh, being able to balance uh, those kind of policies rather we, than the blanket yeah. policy. Because mm. we now, I think it's now well established that that staying at home. Um, has a risk associated to it as well. Mm-hmm. So you you might not die of COVID, but then you might suffer badly from mental health mm-hmm. or from poverty, malnutrition because you mm-hmm. haven't been able to earn any money. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so yeah, yeah. Nothing and, is without yeah. risk. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's also a bit of a, what I say a fog of war or or rather. In terms of there's there's no clarity in terms of the statistics uh, of that as well working from from home, but I think if we if we look at uh, what the Economist uh, publishes uh, instead of uh, looking at the deaths uh, per million or whatsoever, yeah. they look at the weekly excess death. Exactly, I was going to say exactly the same thing. If you if you look at the overall death per month yeah from last year and compared to this year then you then the difference is your overall impact absolutely yeah 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 and it takes yeah it takes account you obviously there's going to be less road accidents because there's mm. less driving yeah yeah so so yeah so so yeah i mean that's these these are the kinds of uh, statistical skills or rather yeah perspectives that I feel that uh, normal people would not really consider or look at. Because I mean, if, if we, are, we are honest, right, we've got so many things to do in our, our lives and we've got only so much uh, mental energy and space. 
right? So yeah, so I mean, it's it's also one of my goals to uh, on this platform to just share these kinds of insights where people like yourselves have already done the research, done the thinking, and then you just present it. And at the same time, you know, not to say, oh, just take it blindly, but something for you to reflect. But there are, but there are, and, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Some of the statistics, like the false positive argument, is quite tricky. And like my, my missus is a math teacher and a statistician, and she and I don't quite agree on it. Mm. And we're supposed to be relative experts. Yeah. So general public hasn't got a chance with that. Mm. But I compare that to the, the other idea, for example, of shutting all the pubs at one particular time. Mm-hmm. So sci- common sense say, seems to suggest, I think the general public would understand that if you close every pub at the same time, there'll be a high density of people on the pavement seeking mm seeking transport in a high density pulse mm. so so i basically suggest that 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 the e i say even even the general public could see that that is not flattening the curve mm. interesting yeah <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, again I'll, I'll answer you that one back if you if you were in charge and you wanted to if, and you wanted to decrease intense population density, would you enforce a strict closing time? I think in in general, yes. Uh, I think the logic uh, behind it would be more of... Uh, I would need to look look at the numbers, really, yeah, to, to really make it inform. Because right... Because the argument, the because arg- in Britain there yep. used to be a closing time for pubs, mm. and they said we're going to take away the closing time for pubs because that will reduce reduce the uh, severity of of or, or the risk of of fighting and brawls at closing time because mm-hmm. you spread it out, mm. and now so they that argument already passed government before. Hmm. But now it's not for this occasion. Yeah. So then you do, then you get the genuine cognitive dissonance. Yeah. You're, yep. you're, you're genuinely contradicting yourself. Yeah. 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 Because what what we here in Malaysia uh, have done is, uh, uh, in terms of uh, well, outright entertainment uh, outlets, uh, clubs. Uh, uh, and the sorts, uh, they are they are not uh, allowed to to operate outright, right? So so they just just went uh, the other direction. Uh, but in terms of uh, F and B places, uh, we do have a strict uh, closing time. Uh, I think I believe it's like at ten p.m. Uh, or so. Yeah, yeah. Because I think uh, that that's an interesting uh, perspective, right? Because in in Malaysia. Uh, we are not as heavily reliant on public transport, right? Uh, we all we all have usually have uh, our own vehicles uh, to to go about. So uh, so it's interesting seeing uh, the different uh, dynamics and societal uh, context within that. 
good so so yeah i mean so in general if you were a policy maker right what would you change and what would you keep knowing what you know <laughs> at this stage yeah so in general if i i i just say copy taiwan mm. basically whatever they're doing do it mm. and then maybe make small changes to that mm -hmm. obviously the everyone wear a mask again it's, it's so in some respect it's too it's a bit late now but because the message has been so confused yeah um because I, I did want to bring that one up as well so um Fauci or Fauci in america um at the beginning of the covid uh, outbreak he said don't wear a mask mm. okay and recently he's been he's been uh, giving interviews uh, in public saying we only said don't wear a mask because we were worried about shortages yeah. now this and that comes back to transparency mm. so i think i i genuinely think that everyone wants to do the right thing mm -hmm. everyone wants to do the right thing so you'll do the right thing if people are honest with you yep so if if Fauci had said at right at the beginning look ease up on look wait a minute user user uh, you know like because they they flip-flopped to that as well they said you know wear a bandana just wear a scarf so if they just said look we're a bit it's a bit tough can you keep the really good stuff for medical people what in this first few weeks while we get our supplies ready can you just stick a scarf around your head mm -hmm. yeah if they just said that look something is better than nothing and please you know wash it once a day mm. um and then look oh good supplies are bucking up we'd like you to upgrade to a nice mask yeah um so if they'd have been if the politicians have been honest right up front, it's, it's still it will be the same message day one to day three hundred. Mm. Just wear a mask if at all possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and again, there are there have been issues with testing in Britain. There have been stories of people having to go hundreds of miles to get a test. Um, and again, we mustn't, we mustn't just criticize governments. If, if, if there's a problem, you've got to present the solution. Mm -hmm. So my solution on this one was um, just bag these samples up and bang them in a plane to Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you don't, there's plenty, you know, it doesn't take, you know, just uh, get the system together in the little bags send them to a testing place that knows how to handle them in mass because the samples don't need to come back just the results yep so the, the plane can go out there with samples and come back with masks for yep. example yeah 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 so the idea so um yeah hmm. so consistent if, if i was in charge consistent message mm -hmm. yeah and this business about this business about keeping businesses open, bearing in mind, got to reduce the risk to older workers and customers. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I think it's 
in terms of like consistency, right? Because the challenge I, I feel for uh, politicians or public figures is that they have to be perceived as being consistent in their positions. But at the same time, given the current situation, it's so fluid. New information is being presented, right? And you need to constantly adapt accordingly. And then that's, that's where, where they, they get all dodgy. Yeah, and, and again, if there's any bad science lurking around, that really compounds their problem. Mm -hmm. So I get that. Yep. But, but, uh, but there are something, I'm, I'm not going to let them get away that easily because wearing a mask is pretty common sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, <laughs> I can't, that, 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 you know, that um, recommendation has not really changed from day one mm. from, from the, from the uh, solid scientists. So, so then let's, let's talk about, you know, given all of the massive amounts of information, be it in COVID or just any topic in general right now in our world today, right? Where we are essentially filled with information overload. What kinds of frameworks do you recommend people to have to really sift through all of this information and to maintain a critical mine ah yeah and again i think this is really really hot topic because the bit the bit that's true is is that we all suffer from information overload so there and there's there's these levels there's these levels of, of uh, perception so there's data right at the bottom so these are just random facts and then there's information which is slightly collated. Yeah, then there's knowledge, which is beginning to interpret the information. Then there's expertise, which is using the best knowledge. And then there's wisdom, which is looking down on all those different layers. So it's, we do need to be wise in, in that we need, you know, as what I say is don't believe what I say. Yeah. What, what is my motivation? You know, what, what's what everything I say, is there a bit of bias? Am I anti-government or something? Um, you know, so am I, is there a, is there a bit of bias in there? Uh, am I pro scientific method? Well, yeah. And I'm fairly open on that, but yeah, the, but the, everyone, everyone can use, can use the scientific method at some level because uh, you you wouldn't normally stick your hand into a into a fire twice <laughs> so we all we all use the scientific method from a very early age mm. yeah yep. if you poke the cat it will bite you mm -hmm. don't poke the cat so you've you've come up with a, a hypothesis um i'm going to have I'm, uh, having fun and poking the cat uh, will will be fun. <laughs> I poke the cat. The experiment. The cat bites me. Result. <laughs> uh, hypothesis denied. Uh, <laughs> rejected. Yep. So so it's built in. Hmm. Um, and we would 
you know, we were talking again earlier, an underlying principle, follow the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've looked for the biases, who, who, win, who wins, who wins out of this? Mm-hmm. And again, who, yeah, follow that money. Yep. So is there any, is there any taint to someone's decision? Mm-hmm. Now, so, so talking about the, uh, the, the method of uh, hypothesis testing, hypothesis creation, right? So there's uh, the whole concept of type one and type two error, right? And I, I feel that that's the challenge that... Uh, oh, please, please explain what you mean by those. <laughs> right, okay. So I, I always keep getting confused which is which, right? So type one error... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, is basically if uh, your your results is is true, but you uh, deny it. Is that correct? Uh, I'm I'm not familiar with these terms directly. Okay, let let but me yeah. just search them, yeah. <laughs> just just to be sure. But you, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so type one error is the rejection of a true now hy- hypothesis, also known as a false positive, right? Mm. Uh, so for example, an innocent person is convicted, right? And type two error is the non-rejection of a false now hypothesis, also known as a false negative finding or conclusion. A guilty person is not convicted, right? So I find that that's the problem that uh, our world is facing in right now. The ability to be able to discern uh, the truth and uh, giving weightage to it. Yeah, I, yeah. So I, again, I'm going to slightly disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Is that it, it's even more fundamental at the moment? It is that at the moment. Um, so in general. If two, if two scientists argue, they don't argue about the data. Mm. Yeah, so if you, what some people would call the facts. Mm. So something that has been demonstrated by experiment in a good solid experiment, I would normally call a fact. Mm-hmm. And, and two scientists of different opinions may well agree, or should usually agree on the fact. Mm-hmm. So this experiment happened. Yep. So we gave, we gave these rats, 100 rats, this toxic toxin, and 50 of them died in an hour. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. They can both, they can both, both the scientists will agree on that. Then where they, then the scope for disagreement is on interpretation. Yep. So the cause, yeah. What? So the cause was it because the the toxin was was genuinely toxic, or mm. or the questioning did did half of the rats have an underlying condition 
that that wasn't taken into account mm -hmm. yeah so it was a fair test yeah yeah so at the at the moment my under i i suspect is that is that there's a flood of bad data mm. so there's a there's a flood of bad experiments <laughs> so that the actual facts are not really solid the foundation isn't very good mm. and and that's got to be that's got to be got under control to so the, the the general public has to understand how to make a fair experiment before getting on to the next level which is um, what is the cause what's the reason behind mm. the result yep yep and i i think like with with what you mentioned from data to info from info to uh knowledge, knowledge from knowledge to wisdom at yeah. every single stage there's a possibility of error on error. mistakes right and uh, i think yeah there, there are challenges uh, uh at, at every yeah. stage yeah and yeah i, I think yeah, so out is very important. yeah another another good rule which is which is you know very powerful i think it's maybe from carl sagan again but it's extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence mm -hmm. so the recent one last few years was that there was an experiment that fact that suggested that neutrinos were going faster than the speed of light mm. okay and that's an extraordinary claim yep so the extraordinary evidence was looked at and 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 then published and one group of scientists says look please this this you know help me out what where's you know this is an extraordinary claim help me out here and then with a detailed look they find that there is a genuine error yeah. a genuine timing uh and that that's the scientific method and it has to be open transparent repeatable yep, yep, yeah and, so yeah, yeah. so the, the general public any anyone watching this can look at anything anyone says and say why are they saying it what's the evidence mm -hmm. what's the what's the underlying experiment under that evidence mm -hmm. and have they done it more than once <laughs> yeah 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 and i i think like you know, when it comes to the scientific uh, method or the scientific community, the question is, are the proper incentives in place to ensure that they maintain their professional integrity? Or are they beholden upon grants, for example, or needing to produce a certain result? Yeah, that's a very, that's a very interesting, uh, uh, that's a very interesting concept because it, it said that your progress, your academic progress, um, will will be determined by the number of published papers. Mm. Um, and the other one, of, the other underlying assumption is that that um, usually a positive result is more likely to be published than a negative result. Mm. So. If I found that this this drug had no effect, uh, that's not going to be published. Mm. If this drug had an effect, it's going to be published. 
because yeah. it, it appears more newsworthy. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I, I I feel that uh, uh, I think what what you previously mentioned in the previous conversation is that there is a lack of uh, empowered scientific communicators, right? It's one thing to have the evidence, the, the, the truth or the facts, but it's a whole other, other thing to communicate it effectively in a way which hooks people's attention, especially in the world where we live in, where everything is trying to grab uh, our attention. Yeah, and uh, but on that, on that matter, I'd certainly recommend everyone uh, watch uh, and listen to Brian Cox and the Infinite Monkey Cage. Mm. Which is which is a panel discussion with scientists and uh, artists and comedians. Um, uh, obviously, Brian Cox is just probably our best science science communicator at the moment. Mm. And what came up recently in the discussion there is that in the olden days, in the olden days, so that which puts me in it, the um, a scientist would be very resistant to express an opinion mm. that because and that that's that's my position right now and i'm only just coming out of it um so but i'm now so again it's a it's a bit of self-awareness here so with my scientific hat on then i'm very cautious and i present the data and the evidence um, but what Brian Cox is saying is that nowadays it's probably fair to let scientists have a an opinion as well. Mm -hmm. So, so he again he gave the example to do with climate change. Said you know so scientifically and as a and I go, I'm pretty much in aligned with him on this. So as a scientist, I think the evidence seems to suggest we've got climate change and the balance of probabilities is that it's it's man-made and that's my scientific opinion mm. and my 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 political opinion is <laughs> but have damn well do something about this damn fast now <laughs> yeah um so that that's my that's my personal emotional opinion it, it needs to be sorted now not yeah. not um, not not uh, bumbling along for another 10 years because we might not have 10 years to bumble along for. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, it's important uh, to be able to empower the scientific community to be able to uh, have a space to express their own opinions based on the knowledge that they have within the context of full disclosure as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think also the challenge is that in our bite size sound bites less than one minute world opinions tend to be taken out of context right you say something uh, from an interview people will will chop it up and say hey you know look look at what the scientist is saying you know this supports my my opinion and you know that's that's where a whole whole load of uh, problems and and that's where the education in critical thinking needs to come in so when you look at the when you look at the news what mm -hmm. is the news's agenda mm -hmm. yeah and we know if it bleeds it leads 
Yep. Yeah, the, the, the multinational media, the mainstream media, they thrive on controversy. <laughs> and they will make controversy where there is no controversy. <laughs> just to get the viewer, just to get the viewer number up. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I like what uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, uh, the, the author of uh, The Black Swan. Uh, he says that, you know, if you want to see uh, how mature society is uh, politically, just look, look at the headlines of their papers. So, for example, if you look at countries like Switzerland, uh, the headlines of their papers would be, oh, uh, you know, it'll, it'll typically be very boring. Right? There's, there's nothing much to sensation life uh, about. Right? Uh, every, everybody's uh, happy. So, uh, ho hopefully our respective societies can get, get to that stage where we don't thrive on controversy, but in terms of focusing on uh, practical solutions, not dehumanizing uh, opposing camps, being able to work together. And like what uh, Buckminster Fuller says, we are all in this together on spaceship Earth, essentially, right? And I think going back to what you mentioned about how, um, why is it that uranium is being used for nuclear reactors is that if you look throughout history, the biggest technological advances in our world uh, has typically been in the areas of military because so much money, uh, as Buckminster Fuller would say, is put towards killingry rather than livingry. Right? Now, what if we could create a world where we channel those resources towards livingry? Right? And, and, e and even on that topic, how many, how many people are aware of how much money is spent by the military? Mm. And again, obviously, the United States is the easiest one to get statistics for. Yep. But a substantial amount of the GDP yes. is yes. spent on the military. Yeah. And, and, and they again, have a huge problem ooh. on uh, accounting <laughs> for their mother money as well. Yeah. And who was it? Was it uh, Jack Ma? Mm-hmm. Uh, that just said, you know, if they've spent the reason why America will fail is because they, they could have spent all this stuff on useful stuff instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you, you also mentioned uh, that you, you have interest in terms of following the money, right? Economic systems. Yeah. Let's, let's go down that rabbit hole uh, for a bit, right? Oh, just briefly. Yeah. So, so you, you, you can see the numbers. You, you, everyone here can go online and look at this again. It, it's easier to get the statistics in America, but you can see the proportion of the wealth that, that it accrues to the top 1%, top 10% and the bottom 9%. And uh, basically there was the greatest equality there was the greatest equality in wealth just after the Second World War, uh, I think. And then it improved, I think, sorry, it improves till about 1960-70. And then since, since 1970, uh, I think the inequality has increased. So, so the top 1% is getting a higher and higher proportion 
of all wealth and GDP. And with the current money printing cycle, again, it's easy to get the numbers in the States, with the current money printing in the States, because of financial reasons, the, the people closest to the printers, money printers, gain the most. So that's gone, most of that money has gone straight to stocks and shares. Uh, and, and to the yeah to basically to the billionaires and not much cash cash has gone to as they say main street rather mm. than wall street mm-hmm. now that's you know what is it you know is it plutarch says you know basically the end of end of every civilization comes when the inequality between the richest and poorest comes too great mm-hmm. so so it doesn't bode well um and I, in some sense, I'm, so that, that, and that's, that seems to be pure cronyism. Mm. So if, if you're in power, you make the rules. And then if you, if it's in your interest to make the rules, to make you richer, that's probably going to be the rule that you make. Mm-hmm. So, so um, there's something fishy there. Um, but it reminds me of the story of, of uh, geese and golden eggs mm-hmm. because, because the middle class, so the very poorest in society, they obviously need to be supported and then, and, but don't contribute in terms of tax mm. or, or maybe even GDP. Uh, and then the billionaires, the billionaires, they're, they're not, they are usually gaining in money from money mm. they're not producing wealth <laughs> so they're not producing stuff because as i keep saying there's there's only what four forms of real wealth so you either dig it out of the ground you grow it yeah you make something or you have some kind of intellectual property some kind of design and everything else is a parasite on everyone else is a parasite on society uh, broadly you're not creating wealth so these billionaires are not they're not they're not digging anything out the ground mm-hmm. they're not growing mm-hmm. anything they're they're actually using money to make money mm-hmm. so those so the people that create wealth are those workers in the middle the mm-hmm. entrepreneurs the workers the factory workers yeah the farmers in the middle um, and I think that the billionaires have got to be a little bit careful because if they if if they overtax that middle class there, there is no wealth mm. there may be money <laughs> but it's printed fiat trust money yep um, but no there's nothing nothing substantial to go with it hmm so what, what what do you think is the alternative uh, around fiat right now? Because <laughs> if, if we were to look at uh, why fiat was created, uh, is to be able to uh, ensure that uh, the exchange of value uh, is made easier, right? But then back then, it was also packed to the gold standard. 
whereas right now uh, the, the printing press so is, is, is essentially free to go all out. So what do you think yeah. is, is the way uh, Yeah, so I, I don't quite understand, I don't quite understand the, the difference between whatever is credit money and sort of full fiat money or something. I, I barely understand fractional reserve banking. That that's a that's that's just a bit beyond where I understand, yeah. um, but but I I I do understand that looking at history, looking to history, every time you print money for the sake of printing money, it doesn't end well. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So Germany, Germany, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, one one uh, ounce of gold goes from a couple of uh, hundred Deutschmarks to a, a trillion Deutschmarks in a, in a couple of years. Um, the value of the gold hasn't changed, mm -hmm. but the value of a Deutschmark has re been reduced by a factor of a trillion. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, every, everything went a bit funny. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a website, this one. Um, what, what happened in 1971? Uh, <laughs> uh, basically 1971 is when America left the gold standard mm. uh, under uh, President Nixon and that's really when money printing and inflation really went went to the skies the limit <laughs> so I I I seem to remember that you're a you're a Bitcoin fan yep yes <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm a gold bug <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I uh, yeah, I um, I can't see the disadvantage in 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 having currencies that are tied back to a physical scarce resource. Mm. Yeah. Um, it, anything anything that stops a government, especially a government of a reserve currency, from being able to print. Um, I again, that's not my that's not my expertise, but but um, but printing printing money doesn't seem like a very clever thing to do. Yep, yeah, um, certainly, yeah. So so that's that's where like the teachings of uh, Robert Kiyosaki or Rich Dad uh, comes in, right? Where they they say this is the problem of the system. This is how the system is being played and game right and they recommend you to play with the system now of course the question is to what extent do you continue going with the system playing with the system and shifting it towards real wealth yeah there's a yeah so there's a few things there so if if it was me i would rather be holding some real wealth whether it be land, gold, wood, iron, <laughs> oil, I'd rather be holding that physically than a piece of paper and a, and a promise of something in the future. That's, that's one part. The, the, other, the other broader topic is whether we are coming to the end, to the end game. Mm. Because this, this, this exponential growth in money 
say started 1971-ish and it's been going on and on for obviously some considerable time but you can't do these things forever mm-hmm. and some people that, that I, I watch like Grant Williams um, is it uh, Peter Schiff Steve mm-hmm. Keen um, met some more and more people that are not so much talking about great reset as, as end game because mm-hmm. um, I'm a naive scientist and physicist and I look out the window and I look at pictures of America if the money has gone up by a factor of a million, oh, sorry, or a hundred or a thousand, why can I not see a hundred times more roads, buildings or stuff? Mm-hmm. So, so having that as a hypothesis, the experiment I would propose is what if you reset money tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What would change? Who would notice? Mm. that would be very interesting the 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 thoughts that comes to mind is that people who are playing purely on the money game and speculative arena debt arena they would be uh, broke (laughs) and then people who are actually generating uh, value uh, you know would be the wealthy ones and of course, there is also a place for the financial system and the banking system where they facilitate uh, the transfer of, of wealth uh, as well in order for the economy uh, to grow. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, and I lost the plot. I lost the plot when they said derivative. <laughs> yep. So if you, can, if you can take a bet, if you can buy a financial option on whether another financial option goes up or down, I, I, I think we're losing the plot. Yes. Obviously, a free market, a stock market, where you say the share in this, yeah, stocks in, in oranges, <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah. uh, stocks in oranges, yeah, if there's a bad harvest, uh, you know, I want to protect myself from a bad harvest, so I invest in futures or whatever. I can see that, so you can stabilize the, the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a bet in the bet, in a bet, in a bet, of whether the price goes up or down, uh, that I struggle with how that creates value. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the just, typical justification behind that is essentially uh, repackaging the risk and just trying to pass it on to to whoever will, will, will buy it. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, but what happened last time when the banks repackaged the risk, yeah. they realized that the risk was repackaged and sold back to themselves. So as, as Nalim Tassib said, it was not, not, um, it's not really, it's a bit of a fake. It's a fake insurance because you're insuring yourself. <laughs> yep. 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 Yeah. So, so yeah, and and I think also that there, uh, in terms of the transparency uh, of those products, were also uh, in, in question. Yeah. So, yeah, because yeah, on on that line, my is it correct that Deutsche Bank has? I can't remember the number now. Is it 
1 trillion, 11 trillion in derivatives exposure. Oh, I, I'm not clear on that. Yep. It's, it's a massive ratio of their nominal book value. <laughs> so, so that's, so again, how, how, the, how the derivative market can be 100 times bigger than the world GDP. Yep. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, th yeah. There's another thing I don't understand. Another thing I really don't understand is high frequency trading. Mm. So how you can how you can have a, a, a an financial advantage in front running a bid that's going in for a stock because you've got a better link to the stock exchange. Yep. That doesn't seem to create value for me. Mm -hmm. I, I can't see an increase in value there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I and I liked the I liked the potential solution there. Yeah, which was a one cent fee on every transaction. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that might stop you doing a million transactions a second. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and then I think the high frequency traders would argue that they are providing liquidity in, in the market <laughs> of, mm. of the sorts, and um, then and then mm. and, and then you see that the the spreads will get thinner through the process. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is being beyond my expertise, my expertise, but it doesn't it doesn't smell right to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think uh, the uh, the book, uh, I think it was the big shot that uh, covered uh, this issue of uh, high frequency trading and the sort. Yeah, let let me just search. Is it uh, who's the author of the big shot? Yeah, so yeah, it, uh, Michael Lewis uh, covers uh, uh, very, very, very good, uh, gives very good insights uh, into high frequency trading and uh, the issues uh, surrounding it. So yeah, I, I definitely recommend people to look into it. And I think one thing you mentioned about uh, the fractional reserve uh, banking system, yeah, I, it was something that really opened my eyes when uh, I was going through my uni in uh, economics and finance and understanding money and the uh, banking. So it was a shocker to me at that time where to think that actually the banks don't have my uh, entire deposits, right? And depending on uh, which country you're in, uh, banks may be allowed to only hold, let's say 10% or 4% of your deposit and just uh, loan out the rest. So to me, that's, that's a very uh, high-risk uh, kind of uh, issue. That, uh, and, uh, but, even, but even higher risk than that was when, when the banks got into gambling, into derivatives market. So it, the big trouble seemed to be when the, when, the, when the domestic bank and the commercial banks mixed. Uh, and that seemed to be a sensible thing to do to to separate those. So you had the you had the domestic banks which could do fractional reserve, but at least that was that like limited. Mm -hmm. But then the commercial banks that were playing with derivatives, with with uh, extraordinary exposure, had to be kept separate. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I think yeah. My, Michael Lewis talks talks about it where that that was one one of the key problems where. Uh, these big banks were supposed to have this firewall 
between their, their two departments. But obviously, with the kind of incentive structures in place, <laughs> those so-called firewalls uh, yeah. are going to be worked, worked around. So yeah, so I mean, we've covered a lot of topics today, you know, uh, given what, what we've talked about in terms of critical thinking, the environment, the economic system, building wealth uh, for, for ourselves, you know, what are your final thoughts and advice for our uh, listeners in uh, moving forward in the world that we live in? How do you lead a better life? Yeah, exactly, and which, which is what I'm, which is what I've been thinking about sort of all the time now. And I think keys include community. Yeah, you, you, will net, you will not get through the next 10 years without strong local community or even strong international community. If, if, you're, if your governments decide to have trade wars or breakdown in in uh, border control then you're gonna need you're gonna need to be more resilient and you build resilience by building a strong community of people and and uh, a, a base of community skills where you all each add value one way or another uh, and uh, yeah it's all very well these ideas of digital this and digital that but um, I, I certainly would recommend building practical skills that you can help your community with, whether it's, whether it's uh, growing, growing some food or fixing this or that, fixing something mechanical, fixing furniture, gardening, uh, caring, talking to local people, mm -hmm. helping, helping looking after young people, teaching. Mm -hmm. um, I think the future is in is in this community community trust yeah. basically um uh, resilience also yeah making sure you you've got real wealth you're offering real value and accumulating real wealth and um if if we're going to get problems with energy and oil then the underlying principle is to be happy with less stuff. I think that this is something that COVID, this is part of the good news for COVID for me, is that I've never been as close to my family. So over the last few months, we've, we've seen the family more physically and, and virtually more over the last six months than in the last 10 years. Um, and we've, we've all, a lot of people seem to be recognizing the discussion, the community is more valuable than the latest new toy. Mm. Um, and uh, even, and again, even, even valuing a nice meal out and experience, again, more valuable than a new toy, than yeah. a new electronic device. Mm. So valuing experiences over stuff. Mm. That's that's not only community building, but it's also eco-friendly. Mm. So that's yeah. that's the direction I'm I'm looking. 
Yeah. I, I, I love your uh, holistic look at it. Uh, and I, I always love tapping into your mind because you, you, you always want to look at the entire ecosystem. You know, how, how is it that the ecosystem supports itself and is sustainable, right? And, and yeah, and yep. any, any, on a bigger scale, any solution that we propose has to work for everybody. Mm. So in some parts of the world, there are people that think they can prep, they can be preppers, mm. that they can, they can get guns and gold and hide in the mountains. Mm. so that's that's sort of fine but not everyone in the world can do that therefore i will write i'm writing that solution out yeah yeah because not not everyone not everyone can have a farm in the middle of nowhere yeah there's not enough space yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah back back to community we need to support each other yeah i i, I think with with what you shared about community it really shows that uh with the current COVID situation, the disruption of uh, supply chains, it really shows the importance of community. You know, for the past few decades, the world has been embracing globalism. All right? we, are, we are looking for value externally rather than creating value internally. So there's, there's a lot of self-reflection on what uh, individual countries, individual communities have to do to be self-sustaining, right? It, it is only right now we realize how fragile and dependent uh, we are on uh, certain countries, right? And uh, the creation of value from there. And I think like what, what you mentioned about being able to reflect upon as a society on what's really important, you know, the, the experiences in our lives. And I feel that that also plays back to the problem with the monetary system. Is because with so much money being pumped into the system, so much debt, it creates a skewed uh, perspective of wealth in our lives. Where, but in actual fact, we are running on credit, right? We are just borrowing from an unsustainable future, living lifestyles that's unsustainable, focusing so much on more, more, more externally that we lose sight of what's important internally and around us. So with that, you know, uh, thank you very much, John, you know, for the wonderful insight and uh, discussion. It's been a real pleasure. We must do it again. A yeah. real pleasure. Thanks, Ching. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and I would certainly love to uh, have you on board uh, next time for another session. Uh, and, you know, guys, for those of you uh, who are listening into this, you know, share with us your thoughts in the comments section because we are a community of thinkers here. We would love to hear your thoughts and it would be uh, of great service to us to share and spread this message. Follow and like uh, the Thinkers Lounge and do look up uh, Jonathan Frost. Uh, he has a lot of value to share. Do uh, follow uh, his page uh, as well and uh, whatever he's doing. Sign up for his newsletters. He has very interesting stories to share. And with that, thank you very much. We'll see you next time on the next Thinkers Lounge. Goodbye for now.